So we are continuing in our study of the book of Exodus. And as you remember from our, our map that we've been following, that at this point, the children of Egypt, or children of Israel, sorry, Freudian slip, um, had left Egypt. And after several months, they've made their way down to Mount Sinai. And we're kind of, um, this is just an editorial note, we're skipping a couple of stories here just for the sake of time. Two of them. One is the battle with the Amalekites. That's the one where um, Joshua's leading the army and when Moses had his, the, the rod in his hands and his hands in the air, they're winning. And if he puts them down, they start losing. And so, so Joshua and her, or no, it's Aaron and her hold his hands up and, and then they win the battle. And then the other one is where Jethro, his father-in-law, comes to Moses and says, you're doing too much. You need to reorganize, put leaders over groups of 10, 100, and 1,000, and let them deal with the day-to-day -day matters. And, and this is really the invention of their national bureaucracy. And it comes not from God, but from a Midianite priest, and it's based on military command, actually. But, but Jethro says to him, your job, Moses, is, is to talk with God and discern God's overall commands. And this sort of seems to clarify for Moses that he needs to figure out what God wants from the children of Israel. Are they going to be a people just like all the other peoples of the world, or are they something different? And our story for today is about how they begin to find an answer to that question. And it comes in the form of this meeting uh, of the royal presence on, on the mountain of God at Mount Sinai that, that kind of forms the type of archetypal scene, like the one that we just saw from, from the old John Adams series on HBO. I, this scene is just the, one of the most hilarious ones to me. This, this country bumpkin lawyer from Massachusetts, like lawyer slash farmer, who has just described himself as a manure artist, by the way, in, in the series, is prepping to meet the king of all England. And he's being coached. You have to do three um, reverences. You, you, one at the door, one halfway, and his wife. I love the looks of it. Laura Linney, isn't that her name? I can't remember what her name is. Anyway, she's just going, this is not going to work, man. This is going to be a bust. And then this big formal bow as he comes before the royal presence. Make sure that you bow low enough so as to not offend them. Make sure you avert your eyes. And oh, also, you should probably get some new clothes because what you're wearing is not going to cut it, right? And of course, all the bowing and scraping and washing was not simply, I'll say simply to, or merely only to appease the ego of a narcissistic king, but rather to show proper reverence for the sovereign ruler. Believe it or not, in most of the Western world, the whole concept of how to show proper reverence for a sovereign king was highly influenced by chapter 19 of the book of Exodus that we just read. Um, it's it's the, the first presentation of them, kind of a country coming to meet with, with Yahweh, and the whole thing kind of culminates then in the giving of the Ten Commandments. That's what happens at the end of the passage that we Read. So I want us this morning to talk through this passage together because there are, I think, some important lessons to be learned here. And it begins in the third month after the people of Israel had left Eretz Mitzrayim, the land of Egypt. The same day they came to the Midbar Sinai, remember that word, the desert of Sinai. And after setting, um, setting out from Rephidim and arriving at the Sinai Desert, they set up camp in the desert as they have been for months. 
And there in front of the mountain, Israel set up camp. And then Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites. Real quick, um, what's going on here is Moses, they're all camped outside of, kind of in the, in the Sinai desert next to Mount Sinai. Moses is going to make three trips up the mountain and sort of do his thing, bow to God three different times and meet with God on behalf of the people and then come down and tell the people what God has said. And this is his first trip we're reading now. God speaks to him first and says to Moses, Moses, tell the Israelites this. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my bereath, my covenant, you shall be my segula, my um, treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me. And in Hebrew, it's mamlachet um, kohanim wegoi kadosh. It means a kingdom priestly and a nation holy, kind of grouped. Now, this is actually a much more radical statement that we might think because we're kind of used to hearing this. God is claiming that these, this kind of stumbling, grumbling community is going to be his treasured possession of all the people of the earth. And they will be a mamlechet um, kohanim, um, a kingdom that is priestly and a wegoi kadosh, a nation that is holy. This is a very surprising thing to say. Um, it's sort of out of, out of left field. And if you remember, um, this bunch of ragamuffins came to Egypt as just a little family, you know, a small clan, 70 people. And they grew like mad, but then they're enslaved. And then all of a sudden, they're, they're just freed. They're just dumped out into the desert wilderness. And now God is, is calling them a nation. And, and not just a family, not just a, a clan, um, not just a bunch of fugitive slaves. They're being recognized as their own nation. This is completely new for them. And, and not just any nation. They're segulas, a treasured possession chosen by Yahweh, among all the nations of the world, including Egypt, which was a much more obvious choice, right? In fact, it, this would have been a big surprise to the Egyptians. They really considered themselves God's gift to creation, right? Um, the Egyptians, they actually didn't even have a word in their language that meant Egyptian. They just called each other human, uh, human beings, as if to say to, to be Egyptian is to represent all of humanity, right? In its most glorious form. But Yahweh... Has, has different plans for humanity. God, God says to them, I brought you out of Egypt like on eagle's wings, and I'm offering you a, a deal here, a, a bereath, a covenant. And if you'll honor this covenant with me, this is what I'll, I'll make of you. And there are these four terms that we just looked at. Um, two of them are political. Two of them are religious. The political ones are nation and kingdom. The religious ones are priestly and holy. So they're going to be a political power, a nation, a kingdom, with a religious purpose to be holy and priestly. To be holy, this, this word trips us up. It doesn't mean to be like pious little church mice. It just means set apart vocationally. They have a different job to do. They're going to be a kingdom of priests. Priests, of course, are the people who mediate the presence of God to the people 
and then mediate the, the people back to God. That's what, that's what priests do. And so here Yahweh is asking all of the Israelite people, he's saying, you're going to be a nation that basically is the priest nation for all the nations of the world. You're going to be set apart, holy, and you'll mediate the presence of God to the world and the world back to God. Not as like elite, you know, insiders with God, country club kind of folks, isolated from the world because they're so special. No, they're holy, as in set apart for this purpose, which is really to organize their common life in such a way that um, they, they image God. They mediate the presence of God to the rest of the creation and bring to the, the nations of the world who don't know God, bring them some kind of knowledge of God's communication to, to the world. So that's what God says to Moses. He climbs down, tells the people, and they're like, this is, this is excellent. We're in. Like, we'll, we'll do this. So he climbs back on top of Sinai to tell Yahweh their answer. And Yahweh said, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and trust you ever after. Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and prepare for the third day because on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, be careful not to go up the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Anyone, any who touch the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch them, the ones who touch the mountain. They shall be stoned or shot with arrows. In other words, they're, they're going to be so toxic now, you'll have to kill them at a distance, right, with projectiles. And, and whether it's animals or, or human beings, they shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, then they may go up on the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people. He consecrated the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, prepare for the third day. Do not go near a woman. That meant abstain from, from sex, right? This is one of their taboos. Now, if you remember, several weeks ago, many weeks ago, the first time Moses is out here in the wilderness watching Jethro's sheep, God appears to him, right, in the burning bush. And what we have here is, in a sense, God regenerating or, or re-engineering that same scene. He's restaging it, not for Moses, but for the whole people. This time for all of B'nai Yisrael. Remember that word, the children of Israel. Whereas um, God told Moses, you know, you're on holy ground. Here God's saying the whole mountain is holy. They, let's have a perimeter. Don't touch this ground. It's holy ground. And whereas um, instead of like taking off their shoes, like Moses was asked to do, they're, they're going to consecrate themselves. They're going to wash their clothes and get dressed up. And then it says, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, as well as a thick cloud on the mountain and a blast of a trumpet so loud that all the people who were in the tramp, um, camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln while the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses would speak and God would answer him in thunder. So this is, this is their burning bush moment, the whole nation standing there. Only it's, it's the whole mountain burning here um, with smoke and fire but not being consumed. So God has come to meet with God's people 
speaking to them in, in the sound of thunder. Moses would speak to God, and, and then the sound would come back as, as thunder. It says, when the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So this will be his third trip, right, up to the top. And this time, he, the Lord actually tells him to bring Aaron with him as kind of a, the representative of all the, of all the priests of, of Israel. So they ascend finally into the royal presence, bow very, very low, right? And this becomes, in a sense, a paradigm for worship for the Jewish people and even, even for us, in a sense. Anytime human beings approach God, there's always this sense in which God remains obscured a little bit. The, the theological term we, we've used before is deus absconditus, the hiddenness of God. God is invisible in God's essence, obscured, right, by smoke and clouds, but not invisible in God's effects, God's impact on the world. And, and this, is, this is huge. God is invisible in any physical sense, like see it with my own two eyes sort of a, a way. But God's impact on the world is not invisible. It can be seen. However, only if um, it can be recognized, right, and interpreted by somebody who knows what's going on. Somebody who can see it and hear it and say, this is God doing something. That's the role that Israel is going to play. They're set apart from the nations to recognize when God shows up in the world and then to interpret that appearing and even obey it, to organize their lives in, in light of it. And in this way, then, to act as priests, to mediate the presence of God to all of the world. The job is to do this and do it faithfully all down through the ages. And this is the bereath. This is the covenant, the promise they're making. Now, God had made a similar covenant, if you remember, um, back in Genesis with Abraham. But this was kind of a more unconditional thing. You know, back then they were in their infancy as a, as a people. They didn't know really anything like about God. They were new, basically newborn babies in this relationship with God. And with newborn babies, you don't, you know, punish them when they misbehave or throw a tantrum. They're just babies. You just love them unconditionally. And, and God's covenant with, with Abraham was like that. It was unconditional just says, look, I'm going to bless your family, and I'm going to make you a blessing to the rest of the world. You don't really have to do anything. Um, you're too young for much responsibility. Just hold on tight. I'll get you where, you where you need to go. But here at Sinai, it's different. This is a different kind of a covenant. They're entering, Israel's entering into kind of like a, an adolescence in terms of their corporate life. And so God's going to give them some more freedom. But when there's freedom, right, there's always strings attached. And God says, I mean, you know, you know what I did for you with, with Pharaoh's armies. I mean, you saw what I could do. I flew, flew you out of Egypt like an eagle. And now I've got a proposition for you. Um, you can't see me. I'm invisible. But I obviously have some, you know, gain, some power. And, but I'm always obscured. In, in what came to be called the great cloud of unknowing. But you can hear my voice, and if you can't, Moses can, and so you can listen to him. And what I want you to do is discern my words for humankind. 
and sort of, in a sense, draw the rest of the world into this conversation with, with God. And if you'll obey my voice when it comes to you, then you'll, just, you'll be my treasured possession. I'll make you into a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so this is sort of the point of no return for Israel here. If they agree to this, then, then everything changes for them. There's, there's a sense in which Israel, if they agree to this, they're going to be kind of on the hook for how humanity turns out as a whole. Like a, like a priest is on the hook for how the people turn out a little bit. It's sort of like the difference between dating and marriage. Like when you're dating, there's always the freedom to walk away. But as soon as you say, I do, you're obligated to that relationship. And whatever happens to that other person, in a sense, it's, it's at least partly your responsibility, how they turn out. And that's, that's covenant. And, and there's usually some kind of formal liturgy, like a marriage ceremony that marks this, because it's that serious of a, of a deal. Same thing with like baptism, very similar thing. That's what's happening here on the mountain. God and Israel are making this formal promise, and Israel's going to take responsibility for mediating God to the rest of the world, to, ha- to help the world have this conversation with the divine. And so what comes into being in this moment, it's really kind of cool, it's a solemn thing, is a new kind of people, a new kind of nation that really had never before existed in the history of the world. Israel would have this peculiar status from here on out. Their life, their future would completely depend upon their faithfulness to God, to listening to God moment by moment, obeying God's commands, even though they haven't got the commands yet. They had to make the promise. That's 19. The commands come in 20, right? This is, this is a big risk. So they don't do it on the basis of what the commands say. They do it on the basis of, I brought you out of Egypt. You know what I can do, right? So this is a big moment of trust. It's like when you get married, you you don't know what you're in for, man. There's no way. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't do it, right? That's why we make you stand up and promise in front of everybody. It's, it's that kind of deal. They don't know what the command is yet. They just know this God is powerful. He's inviting us. This God is inviting us into a special relationship, and they say yes. And then what happens next, chapter 19 draws to a close, and then the first words of Exodus 20 are, then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And then comes really one of the most famous passages, not just in in the Bible, but in any written word in all of history, the Ten Commandments. It's one of the most famous little bits of writing ever written down. Um, And we know it as the Ten Commandments, which is kind of strange because the word ten appears nowhere, nor does the word commandments in that whole passage. It's never used in the Hebrew text. And there can be ten of them, but there's pretty good warrant to chop it into only nine, and even eleven will work. Um, That's totally legitimate. But but what the text actually says, instead of ten or command, what it says is um, that God spoke... um, Hadebarim, which, which really just means words, these words, spoke these words. So this is, this is a word from God. The God is speaking to them, 
and they're supposed to do their thing, do their job to interpret and, and embody this, right? And it's a word that only the Israelites get to hear. It's for them. And it's a word about what God will require of them if they're going to be this, this nation of priests. Now, we're not even going to read the Ten Commandments. We're, we'll deal with the content of them um, next week. Um, we'll get to kind of the what of God says next week. Today, though, I want us to pause and just think about the that instead of the what. That God speaks to them, and then they, they write it down, which is also a pretty new thing. I mean, think about what that entails. It's, it's interesting, I think, to just consider this moment in their history. They've just made this huge promise. They don't know what it's going to require, and then God begins to speak, and they write it down, right? So if, if we consider not what God said, but that God said, spoke something to them, and they wrote it down. This is huge. This changes everything. Because once you write the words of God down, you have to interpret them. Right? Somebody has to read them and construct some kind of meaning out of them. And therein lies the problem, right? I mean, think about this. Once you write down the words of God, somebody has to read them. And this is what the covenant involves. Not, not just reading them and knowing what they say or remembering them, but obeying these words. That, that means somebody has to not only interpret what they say, but interpret what they mean and how to, how to comport themselves in such a way that they, they line up with those words in some kind of obedience. So these these um, Hadeb Barim, these, these words, ten words from God, invite interpretation and then obedience. And it's an interpretation and an obedience that's not like perfectly contained within the words themselves. And you see what's happening here. I mean, God, God has asked them to be a kingdom priestly, a nation holy, and then God gives them these 10 words to write down, which means they open the door to interpretation, which ends up being a source of all kinds of religious violence and disputation and division, um, not just for Israel, but for all of the world. I mean, this, this is a tough calling. It's a lot easier just to be the Pharaoh, you know. This is a tough calling. You just take a simple command like um, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Which Sabbath are we talking about, right? The Hebrew people start their Sabbath Friday at sundown, and it goes till Saturday at sundown. And Christians, you know, work all day Saturday in, in the yard. And then they, they do Sunday on, or Sabbath on Sunday, which is not Sabbath, like strictly speaking, it's, it's just not. So which Sabbath? How do we remember it? Do we just have to wake up and go, Sabbath today, remember, check, done, right? Or what does it mean to keep it holy? Do, do we have to go to church or temple? Is it enough to like share a meal and pray? Or do we need to do acts of service? Do we have to do this all privately? Or does it need to be public? I mean, there are rabbis who say you literally cannot turn on or off a light switch on the Sabbath, or that is considered work. 
You can't cut your fingernails or pluck a hair from your head. You can wear sandals that have a woven sole, but if the sole is nailed to the sandals with a, with a metal nail, then each time that you lift your foot, that's counted as work because you're lifting metal, right? And, and you can eat bread, but you can't knead bread or cook bread on the Sabbath. You can receive medical attention, but only if you're about to die, and then only enough medical attention to keep you alive until the next day when they can actually do the surgery I mean, you see, you see the difficulty? This is one little command. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But once you write those things down, man, someone has to decide what they mean and how to live in light of them. And it's always going to be a big fight. And, and so that's, in a sense, Israel's calling to get in there and fight to wrestle with each other and with God and to, dis- to decide what God is asking of humanity. Usually what happens is um, the, the argument, the fight, breaks down upon very predictable lines. And most of you, I can see your eyes smiling. You already know where I'm going, right? There's a conservative side and a liberal side or a conserving side and a liberating side of these. And so two two groups usually emerge. One group says, on kind of the conserver side, says, we got to hold on to our traditions. We've been talking about this for a while, what this means. Things mean what they've always meant, okay? Obedience is the same in every generation. It doesn't change just because the culture changes, right? And these people, of course, are often accused of a kind of absolutism. This idea, it's a form of fundamentalism, right? It says, you know, knowledge, truth, morality, they're fixed and universal, and they're not subject to, like, cultural or societal or historical differences or changes, right? The the original meaning, what we talked about first, that is absolute. And so our observance is absolute and cannot change, right? Which is, by the way, completely impossible. (laughs) Cannot be done. I mean, unless you want to be Amish. And even then, why'd they choose... They're all living at, what, a 17th century lifestyle? Why are they doing that? Why'd they pick that one? Why not, you know, let's all go back and be like first century Palestine. It's, it's just, it's arbitrary. That's one group. The other group says, life changes. Context change. And every new age faces new problems. And so obedience to God's commands, it has to change with the age. So obedience, say, during the digital age, will differ from obedience during the Iron Age. Um, and, and these folks are often then accused of just trying to make God say whatever they want God to say in the moment. This is, this is often called relativism, where knowledge and truth and, and morality, they, they just exist only in relationship to culture, almost like they're dictated by culture and society or the historical context, and they're not fixed in any way, which is also impossible, right? If words can mean anything and everything, then words don't mean anything at all. And so Israel is asked to stand here with these two things. And and what I think they're asked to do, and and by extension us as we're brought into this covenant, what I think the the people of God are are, are asked to do is to find a way to not let either side win. 
to, to kind of crash these two into one another and see what sparks they give off. Um, now, by the way, I'm stealing very heavily from Walter Brueggemann. God bless Walter. I can't read the Old Testament without him. Um, but, but, but I think that we're sort of, don't blame him for my words, by the way. I'm just stealing from him. He's not saying this. Um, the, there are these kind of two ditches of anything goes relativism and only our thing goes absolutism. And what we're looking for is, is not um, a middle way between them. It's not a compromise. What we're looking to do is crash them, let them be what they are, crash them together and come up with this third thing. And what I think this third thing is, it's just, it's embedded in the life of the people of God. It is a lived third thing. And, and I think the name for it, this is the name that Brueggemann gives it, is dialogical perspectivism, which sounds like a hard concept. It's, it's actually not. You do this all the time, very naturally. But these, these words are packed with meaning. So let's, let's unpack them. So dialogical perspectivism, what is this? Well, it's dialogical, which means it's, it's a conversation. It's a dialogue. An open-ended conversation that spans the distance between like anything goes relativism and, and the most you know, fundamentalist absolutism and everything in between, right? It's this big dialogue that says we're talking, we're talking, we're arguing even. It's disputatious. It's, it's a big fight, right? But it's, it's one of those fights where it's like a good-natured argument and nobody wins, and everybody stays friends. That's dialogical. I hate those YouTube's, YouTube videos. You'll, you'll see them where the headline is, watch our guy own their guy, right? Or destroy their guy. There's all this. They're just, they're stupid, right? Nobody, if that's what you're doing, nobody has won. You're just tearing everything down, right? God doesn't, doesn't get here by demonizing people and and dividing, God is after this open-ended dialogue that sort of bugs everyone, bothers everyone, where nobody gets to claim victory. And people, in order to stick together, have to, have to love each other. They have to learn how to love each other. That's dialogical. And then perspectivism is the other half. This is a, a recognition that one's worldview is always dependent upon one's context and history, their particular perspective, right? So if you grew up in, you know, if, from a black family in Queens or an immigrant family in Southern California, you're going to read the Bible differently from like if you came from old money, uh, blue blood, deep south, right? You, you will read the Bible differently if you have... You know, been to the deep south, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They read the Bible differently than we do even around here. And so, so obedience to that, if you're reading it differently, obedience to that can seem wildly different if you're, say, an Iron Age warrior compared to, you know, a, a project manager at Cerner. You're going to read the scripture and obey it differently. And, and this is okay. This is even intended 
depending on one's perspective or context or even the historical era in which you you live, um, biblical interpretation, all interpretation, necessarily requires a kind of perspective taking, a contextual thing. This is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. This comes up with a better understanding of the text, a more um, faithful obedience in the end. Okay, step back for a moment. The children of Israel, they're, they're in a tenuous moment here. They're, half the time they're thinking, let's just go back to Egypt where it's safe. And then this God shows up with a burning bush moment, only it's a whole mountain. And they're just in awe. And this God says, I want to make a deal. And they say yes. And then he tells them the terms. And the terms are this kind of dialogical perspectivism you're going to have to sponsor a conversation and it's going to be a big, messy fight and you have to make sure nobody wins and stay in it, right? And they've, they've promised obedience, but now the words get written down and they're up for interpretation. And so how, how do they do this? How do they faithfully um, live out the words God's given them without falling into anything goes relativism or only our thing goes absolutism? And, and this is what I think. This is the best way I know to, to summarize it. And I've worked, honestly, most of my life, I think, unconsciously and a lot consciously to get to this language. And this is the best that I could do at, like, this stage in my discipleship. But it's something like this. It seems to be God's plan that interpretation should be disputatious complicated, high-stakes conversation, graceful, of course, open-ended and ongoing, in which traditions are preserved and passed on, and ever-changing contexts and perspectives also come to bear, and in which nobody can shut anyone else up or close the discussion down. And this conversation is, is the kind which results in a plurality of diverse obediences living harmoniously as one people. That's the best that I can do. Let's say it again. There's a lot in there, so if you want to take a picture of it and argue with me later, then that's obedience, baby. That's what we're supposed to do, right? But it seems to be God's plan that interpreting the words of God should be disputatious and complicated at very high stakes conversation that's also graceful and open-ended and ongoing. It never stops in which the, the old, old traditions, every interpretation is preserved and carried along with us, even if we don't use it and it's passed on. But at the same time, ever-changing contexts and perspectives come to bear on how we read it and live it out, right? And nobody can get shut down. Nobody's declared winner and closing down discussion. And the result of this is a plurality, many different and diverse, diverging, looking very different obediences. That's the key. Diverse obediences. Living harmoniously as one, one people. This, that's dialogical perspectivism. That's, that's the best I can do. And, and what I think all of us have learned when we try to do this over the years is it's really nice to write this down and put it on a slide it is hard to do, man. It's hard to do. 
And I don't mean hard because everybody else is a big pain. I'm the big pain, right? We're the big pain. This is difficult. And, and it really, um, really comes down to the only thing that disqualifies our reading and our obedience is when it leads us to a place where we refuse to love the other and people who read it and obey it in a different way. Jesus says, I think it's Paul, that, that ends up being like a sounding gong. This noise, the clanging symbol. If you don't know how to love. When, when Jesus got angry with the Pharisees, it wasn't because they had strong opinions. It, it was because they were ready to kill people who didn't share their opinions. And, and if you're ready to stone those who don't practice your same obedience, you have shown you don't understand what God is saying at all. Here's the thing. You and I, all of us, we are children of the covenant. I mean, not, not the same covenant. Jesus has come in and made a new covenant, but it's part of this old one. It's contained within it. And, and our task is still to try to have this conversation somehow to avoid the anything goes relativism and kind of the, the fundamentalism, the absolutism of only our thing goes. And to have this conversation in, in a public way in our neighborhoods, with our kids' friends, in our workplaces, in politics, in, in business, with our own families and extended families, it's really, really hard to do, especially when they start trying to kill you, right? How do we do this? How do we sponsor this conversation and um, lead toward this meaning of what God is saying to us and this living out in a way that helps us all just keep faithing forward together, even though we all look a little bit differently? You think back to the video and where we started and all this pomp and circumstance, right, bowing before God. Part, part of what that's supposed to, to do is it inspire such reverence for what's coming our way from our sovereign that we don't feel like killing one another. That we all just come to God with so much reverence that that reverence for God keeps us from getting too haughty or proud or ready to, to take the others down. Right? We're all just sort of country bumpkins trying to figure out how to not embarrass ourselves as God speaks to us and how to live in faithfulness to that over time. This, this just requires a very humble, open-handed posture before God. It's pretty cool, huh? That's, that's our job. This is our task. It's what it means to be part of the, the people of God. We're part of this, this covenant. Let's stand, you guys, and we're going to receive communion. And the way that we do this is um, we'll come forward row by row and be offered a plate um, with the, the bread and the cup kind of uh, shrink-wrapped on it for COVID's sake. And they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say um, amen or say, I will remember. But the reason that we do this is because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and after he'd given thanks, he, he broke it and passed it out to his guys and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup in the same way after supper, 
saying this cup is the new covenant, the new bereath in my blood, a new deal between you guys and God that's constituted by his body, by his blood. And he said, so every time you get together, you know, do this. Take my life inside of your life and be made of the stuff I'm made of and then be sent out to the world to, to be part of this conversation, to sponsor, in a sense, this conversation. That's why we do this. So will you pray with me and let's bless um, the bread and the cup. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon this meal um, that it may be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us and send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?